friends, I'm Stacy, And I'm Melissa. And we're teaming up each month to chat about books. What makes our podcast a little different is that we want to encourage your curiosity beyond the book. So how will we do that? In addition to discussing the themes, characters, and a review of the book, we will also discuss what the book taught us and how it inspired our curiosity well after the story finished. Now, let's get on with our episode. podcast and i wanted to give a great big welcome to all of our listeners and tell you how happy we are that you could join us today so melissa we are going to be discussing the young adult suspense thriller the girls i've been by tess sharp and here i go again (laughs) i am gushing over a book but oh my it was a wild roller coaster ride of adventure lies manipulation violence mystery romance and tragedy into triumph And we've talked before about books to film, and Netflix is turning Sharp's novel into a feature film. YA novels are making a splash on the TV screen, not just newer books like The Girls I've Been, but books and series that have been out for a while. And I love what it's um, done for the circulation of some of the books that I have here on the shelf. (laughs) Uh, Since Netflix's release of uh, Lee uh, Bardugo's Shadow and Bone, which actually incorporates also um, her Six of Crows in there, uh, the books have been flying off the shelves. I've yet to return any of those books to the shelf. A book gets returned, and it goes right back out again. That's awesome. Ah, I'm so excited. I also hear that um, Kira Cass's series, The Selection, is also going to be coming to Netflix. That's an older series. And then Lauren Oliver's uh, 2015 novel, Panic, is set to premiere on Amazon Video. Um, Actually, in just a few short days. I think. Actually, I think it's tomorrow. I think it's going to be tomorrow. Good. There's so much happening for um, young adult fiction lovers. I can hardly keep up. So getting back to the girls I've been, the protagonist of our story is the daughter of a woman that excels at the sweetheart con. And as soon as she is old enough, our protagonist helps her mother con the bad men that are chosen as the marks. Each con features a new name and a new identity for both our protagonist and her mother. And eventually in a daring escape at age 12, aided by her estranged sister, Our protagonist spends the next five years hiding in a mundane town going by the name Nora. She lives with her private investigator sister, and she's trying to make a new reality and normalcy for herself. Then one day, Nora, her current girlfriend, Iris, and Nora's ex-boyfriend, Wes, I hope you can follow all that, (laughs) they step into a bank and become hostages during a robbery. Nora's con artist skills may be the only thing that enables everyone to make it through the ordeal alive. Secrets are revealed. Confidences are tested. Relationships are evaluated and cross-examined. And as I read this book, all I could think about in the back of my mind was, hmm, we're going to be exploring some pretty heavy, uh, dark, violent-laden, crime-dominant topics. (laughs) And then I was like, hmm, and what are we going to do for an interview? Ah, maybe a con artist. Uh, But that's probably crossing the line. I wish I could have done that. (laughs) But we we do have a good interview. Oh, that's awesome. I love when we have interviews and, you know, that will just have to be maybe a different podcast. Uh, Who knows? So before I divulge more about this thriller... Melissa, what are some of the themes that we could have explored? Well, I do feel like I was taking a walk on the dark side a little (laughs) bit. But um, topics I considered were con artists, private investigators, bank robberies, fear, childhood trauma, sexual abuse, prison tattoos, teen pregnancy, and prosperity religion, which I had never Mm. heard of before. Um, But we did religion in our last podcast, so I didn't want to go back in that direction. And then uh, Private Ice. I settled on a crime special that covers con artists, bank robbers, um, and I forget my last theme, so you're just going to have to wait and find out. Con artists, bank robbers. We'll get there. Yeah. (laughs) That's a surprise. (laughs) So... 
<laughs> yep, those are some pretty heavy topics right there. So one thing that I found myself researching was, um, so I t- we talked about in the three characters I was telling you, Nora and then her current girlfriend, Iris. So Iris has um, this fashion. It- it's mentioned that she wore vintage clothing, long skirts with crinoline underneath, which I actually had to look up. Um, I was pretty sure by the context that it was some type of poofiness under her skirt, um, like layers of tulle, but I wanted to make sure. And then she had a wicker purse with red Bakelite cherries attached. Um, and I found out that was actually a common article of plastic inexpensive costume jewelry in whimsical forms of fruit that appeared around the 1930s. All right. So I'm going to stop you because I want to throw in, I was yeah. reading a book about Thomas Edison. Okay. Who, actually I'm reading it right now, who went up against Bakelite with um, his own version of it, or his might have come out first, but it's wow. just funny how things that you're reading about and everything ties together if you pay attention. Exactly, exactly. Oh, I didn't know that. So now I'm going to have to go and research that as well. (laughs) Um, So... You found a picture. Thank of you. The cherry. <laughs> yes, I did. So as I was researching, I found a picture of the Bakelite cherry brooch. And there was some great information about vintage fashion trends. Um, and I found this on the FIDM Museum website. Um, there was something that just drew my attention to Iris and her fashion. Probably because I'm not very fashionable. <laughs> so there's like maybe I long to be. I don't know. Um and I feel like when I've observed others that present a vintage vibe with their clothing and their hairstyle and their accessories, um, I there's this aura of confidence around them. And that's just my perception. And I pictured Iris with this same type of confidence. And I'm not going way out on a left field here because she's not even our main character, but I loved her. I loved how she dressed in this 1930s to 1950s attire, long skirts, curls in her hair. And then she had this obsession with fire, which I thought was great, too. And she wanted to be an arson investigator. I don't know. There was something so eclectic and zany and fun about her. I love your observation about dress, because my daughter is going off to college to study costume design. And we've talked a lot about how you dress makes you feel better. And even her college essay was on that, how when she dresses, it makes her feel like a different person, more more confident, um, more poised, as you said, just yeah. just different. And um, I really like this character because of that, um, just because how the dress helped define her, but yes. also showed how diverse a person can be. You know, you don't picture an arson investigator right. wearing vintage clothing. <laughs> exactly, with long skirts and, all, you know, you don't. It, it was just such that, I, I don't know, I just loved her. I loved her. Let's get to Nora now. So she is our main character, and that's not her real name. Uh, She has many names that she has gone by over uh, her life, and she's so well-developed. And Iris and Wes, um, they both have strong roles in this book as well, and I think the author did a great job at developing all of them. And they're tight-knit in this. Um, They're they're close friends. Uh, At one time, Wes was Nora's boyfriend, um, but Nora kept her past hidden from Wes, and when he found out, uh, he was hurt. And it wasn't so much that he was angry about what her past entailed. It, it was more that she wasn't honest with him, and she wasn't open and trusting. Um, and Wes and Iris actually have a very close relationship as well. And so he wants to protect Iris from the same type of feeling that he went through, that same emotional trial that he experienced. Um, And a tie that binds all three of these characters is that they suffer from battle wounds inflicted by adults that were supposed to nurture, love, and protect them. And tough conversations ensue as they are hostages together, but it eventually knit them together, a beautiful tapestry of friendship, resiliency, grace, love in all its forms for these teens. And it's in the throes of this hostage situation that the reader learns about Nora and Rebecca and Samantha (laughs) and Haley and Katie and Ashley. See, these are all the names our lead protagonist has gone by. Each name is a different persona with distinct attributes that are drilled into Nora by her con artist mom. Each carefully crafted identity was used to draw in the mark. And the author weaves in and out between the present-day bank robbery 
and then flashbacks to each former identity and con. And I actually love the way the author goes back and forth in this story. It was more seamless than many authors managed yeah. to do it. I thought it was great. It was. It was. The format worked brilliantly, and it really allowed the reader to see the growth of Nora into her survivor. You know, I've read that um, The Girls I've Been can fall under teen noir fiction, meaning there's an intricate plot. Uh, it's crime fiction, the use of flashbacks to fill in the story, this good girl, bad girl character type, and then the detective mystery storylines that reveal a dark underbelly to society. And there's definitely all that in there, and, and that is true. But with some research, I actually found out that um, noir protagonists actually end up losing in the end. They fail to grow and change and that their vices ultimately consume them. So I don't think that's the case here with Nora because she does grow. And while she also resorts back to her old tactics and learned behaviors, her motivation in using those to me is on the right side of the scale. Um, She no longer wants to run. She wants to build a real life with those around her. And she particularly wants to protect those that she loves in a way that her mother never did for her. This was a well-done book full of suspense and thrills. It brought you down a roller coaster of pain and trauma to hope and love. And it introduced you to a small, well-developed cast of characters you can't help but want to embrace. And now I know I just ended on a really warm fuzzy there. (laughs) But... We are going to switch gears, and we are going to move into some territory riddled with fraud and deception. All right, Melissa, talk to us about theme number one. Okay, so theme number one is uh, con artists, also known as confidence men. That's how they were first known. Hmm. So let me start by explaining some of this terminology. What is a con? Let me familiarize you with all this jargon if you don't already know it. A con is an attempt to defraud someone after gaining their trust. And it's short, as I said, um, for confidence. Um, In this case, a con is a confidence game. And it's also known as a swindle, a hustle, or a scam. Okay. Wow. Con men and their shills, who are their helpers or accomplices, perform short cons that are limited to the amount of money that is immediately available or to an object such as a watch. So if you're walking down the street, the con man might, con man might try to get you to hand over your watch so mm. he can temporarily guard it. Um, and they're fast talkers. So they, you know, how they convince people to do this is kind of crazy. Yeah. But and then they just walk off with your watch. So that's a short con game. Then there are long games that can go on for days, weeks, or months, as we see in The Girl I've Been. Nora serves as her mother's shill throughout her childhood. The money or items the con man takes are called the score. Okay, there, there's a lot of lingo here. <laughs> and I think in the book, Nora also uses the term grifter. And I had to look that up because I'd never heard of it before. And a quick definition read that um, it's a person who gauges in petty or small-scale swindling. Um, but then I found a better definition in the Urban Dictionary that truly fit, I think, the essence of this book. A grifter is somebody who can influence anybody anywhere at any time, into doing whatever they choose to have them do. That will result in the grifter's personal gain, usually monetary, but really anything that benefits him or her somehow. And I think that's particularly in the uh, hostage situation in the bank robbery, that's what comes out right at the beginning. Okay, what am I going to do to get these two robbers you know, to draw them in and make them work the plan I'm making, not the plan they have. Right. And also the last um, con that that Nora's mother thought she was going into, she thought she was going to con this guy who ended up using them for his own nefarious things. So yeah, so much in here. (laughs) I really like this book. I can't wait for the movie. (laughs) Me neither. Okay, so confidence tricks exploit typical human characteristics such as greed, lust, romance, dishonesty, desperation, trust, gullibility, power, and compassion. The con man uses lies to prey on these characteristics and convince people that, or, or to convince their marks to give up things they value. The cons of Nora's mom involved romance and compassion. She provided the romance. Her daughter daughter provided Mm. the compassion. My New Yorker came out for a minute. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And she used a male mark and a long game. 
There are many different types of standard cons, including get-rich-quick schemes, gold brick scams, which are sales of objects for much more than they are worth, gold digging, which I think we've all heard of, which relate to romance scams, and humbuggery, which is P.T. Barnum's uh, (laughs) thing. Um, Very interesting guy. I actually just heard a podcast on on him, um, which I'll I'll put in our Pinterest page. Um, Wire schemes. Peter Funk, which is mock auctioneer uh, inflating prices. I had never heard of that one. Ponzi schemes, pyramid schemes, vanity scams, and more. Awards and opportunities, like famous art lessons. I remember seeing in old comic books, you know, we'll hire you and or or write into us, show us a picture, and we'll tell you if you can be an artist. And then they get you to pay for art lessons. Yeah, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. I remember those now. Yes. So humans love stories about cons, but why? They make a good story with rich characters and scenarios. That's why. And perhaps it also speaks to our own vulnerabilities, those characteristics that I just talked about relating to compassion and greed and mm. et cetera, et cetera. When we hear about them, we wonder if we could achieve a con or or maybe be taken by a con. I can't be taken by a con, we often say to ourselves. But my research showed that anybody can be. Yeah. Um, uh. And if you think you can't be, that's part of the problem. Cons speak to the very heart of human nature and our very complicated selves. They prey on what we wish were true. Mm. So according to an interesting article in the Atlantic magazine, I'm going to quote, Americans love a con man. In his insouissance, his blithe, I don't know if I said that right. I said it the French way. (laughs) His blithe refusal to stick to one category or class, his constant self-reinvention, the con man, and he is almost always a man, which I thought was interesting because that's not what we have, Hmm. um, takes one of America's foundational myths. You can be anything you want to be to its extreme. The con man, the writer and cultural critic, critic Lewis Hyde has argued is one of America's unacknowledged founding fathers. Wow. So one question I have and one way I could could have gone is since this is an American characteristic are cons more common in this country oh, I wonder. I wonder yeah. Hmm. So con men thrive in times of up- upheaval. Transition is the confidence game's great ally, says Maria Konnikova. Um, She has a book that I just ordered called The Confidence Game, which is an account of how swindlers manipulate human psychology. (laughs) There's, quote, there's nothing a con artist likes better than exploiting the sense of unease that we feel when it appears that the world as we know it is about to change. The first great, oh, end quote, <laughs> the first great era of the American scam artist, the period when the confidence man got his name, began in the mid-19th century. The con- country was rapidly urbanizing. Previously far-flung places were newly linked by railroads. Americans were meeting more strangers than ever before, and thanks to a growing economy, they had more money than previous generations. Mm. All of those strangers, all of that cash resulted in an era powered by trust, says the confidence game. An era of cons, and the internet age just gives con men an easier avenue to perpetuate their crimes. Yeah. One of my favorite stories of a con is the 1973 movie The Sting with Paul Newman and Robert Redford, and I just love them. (laughs) It's a great old movie that shows how a good con is achieved with intricate planning and detail. There are quite a few shills in this movie. It seems everyone is in on the game. So I looked it up and I learned that the picture won seven Academy Awards, including Best Picture. The Sting has become one of America's favorite and most critically acclaimed films. Robert Redford and Paul Newman star as two con men in the 1930s out to avenge the death of a mutual friend. They seek revenge on crime lord Robert Shaw with a sting that is one of the greatest double crosses in movie history, complete with an amazing surprise finish. Hmm. Everybody should see this movie. My teenager absolutely loved it. So if you are a teen listening to this, go find Robert Redford and Paul Newman. You will like it. All right. As I was researching, I came across another con movie that I loved and forgot about. (laughs) One more recent, Catch Me If You Can, with Leonardo DiCaprio, based on a real con man. Another great one. What's your favorite con story, Stacey? So one of my favorite movies is American Hustle 
first, Bradley Cooper's curly hair is hilarious in this movie. And I read that he actually would... So someone, they said, oh, did you get your hair permed for this? And he said, no, I curled it every morning, just like the... So it's loosely based off of um, real events, but this real FBI agent, he said, just like he curled his every morning, which I think was very common in like the 1970s, with those little punk, uh, pink sponge curlers. So <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so, the gist of the movie, though, is that a con man and his mistress make a deal with the FBI to help bring down some white-collar corruption, particularly tied to bribes taken by political leaders like congressmen and governors. And while the con man, his name is Irvin um, Rosenfeld, and he's played by Christian Bale, he does help the FBI in their sting. He hasn't lost his con man skills, and the plan does not exactly play out as the FBI wants it to. Um, you know, so actually the con man kind of manipulates the sting. And so it still ends up working, but he gets something out of it as well. And so I don't know, I thought it, it was just great actors, great. Um, there was like a double cross as well. So I think there is that great uh, aspect to it. And the movie is loosely based on the real life abscom operation sting um, that the FBI put into action in the late 70s and early 80s. So it's so. been really hot around here. So if nothing else from this podcast, you'll get a list of things to yeah. watch in nice air conditioning if you right. have it. So, <laughs> so take notes. So on page 36 of the book is the quote, the best con has a seed of truth. That is so true. And here is why. Um, so I dug really deep going beyond just the stories. Oh. In an article called The Irresistible Allure of the Con Artist, I learned about the work of Melanie Green and Timothy Brock, who studied the persuasive power of storytelling. Um, and obviously, we're talking about books having this power to draw us in. Mm -hmm. um, and they're relating it to real life. I've linked to their study called The Role, <laughs> hang with me, The Role of Transportation in the Persuasiveness of Public Narratives. That's a mouthful. That is. <laughs> <laughs> they describe the idea of transportation, meaning you becoming engrossed in a story um, where it affects your beliefs. Narrative has the power to persuade us mm. or transport us. So when a con artist invents a good story, one is liable to get sucked in. Green and Brock go on to discuss the building of the narrative and how the listener may spot kernels of untruth. And after my discussion, I spoke with uh, uh, our interview this week is with the police officer. He talked about how they really um, recommend that if you have a little, you know, little thing on your shoulder saying, wait a minute, that doesn't sound right, that you really should dig into that and mm. say, okay, I've got to slow down and stop and think. Yeah. So a little gut check there. If exactly. There's, like, there's something, um, you know, quickly, um, before we go on, we were talking about the kernels of truth and then, and the internet age and how con artists, um, you know, it proliferates across that. When I was researching, I did see that, um, the state of, Con um, Connecticut actually has on their website, their .gov website, a whole website page about how to not get sucked in by the con artist. So I was like, wow, they actually have something up there about what to spot, what to look out for, how to not be deceived. And the Goffstown Police Department, actually, Officer Matt, who I spoke with, created a brochure about wow. how not to get sucked in by scam. So I think that's wow. something that yeah. perhaps all libraries should put in their libraries um, if, if your town has those brochures. That could be very helpful. That is a great idea. So in our book, Nora talks about how she learned to con at the age of seven. On page 37, she says, being Rebecca teaches me how to lie, how to look into someone's eyes while there isn't a true word coming out of mm. your mouth. Something I'm not very good at. Me neither. <laughs> but they believe it because enough of you believes it. I'm not a cute seven-year-old lying wide-eyed and obvious about stealing a cookie. I'm manipulating people, figuring out what actions get the desired results. Mm. There's also a physical component to all of this that I came across in my research. That same article, The Irresistible Allure of the Con Artist, talks about the work of neuroeconomist Paul Zak. Who knew there was such a thing? <laughs> <laughs> he discovered that the release of oxy 
oxytocin causes us to develop feelings of trust. Hmm. Oxytocin is released when people feel empathy. For example, think about those commercials that play the sad song and show faces of distressed puppies mm-hmm. and kitties. Do you, don't you want to hug one or pull out your wallet to support them? The commercial plays on your emotions to yeah. elicit that oxytocin response. They might not know that's what they're doing, but that's what happens to you. Wow. The commercial has been around longer than our knowledge of the physical response. As have the con artists, but the storytellers have known for a long, long time that they elicit an empathy response, even if they didn't understand the hormones involved. Wow. So much science involved here. I know, right? <laughs> so listen to uh, Zach's TED Talk, Trust Morality and Oxytocin, to hear about how con artists can take advantage of this physical response in their marks. It really was a fascinating listen. Um, They consciously, as I said, manipulate us knowing what our response will be. They encourage a biological response that releases the oxytocin. And that encourages us to want to share things like our money (laughs) or our passwords or whatever they can get their hands on. Zach tells a good story about when he was a mark, and he includes other interesting stories about the release of oxytocin, like when he attended a wedding and took everyone's blood to measure their release of it. <laughs> no, he didn't. That's what he said. <laughs> wow. I don't know why, the, but he said the bride even did. <laughs> Okay, so consider a few recent cons and recent con artists. I was I was just shocked how many there were, and I just picked a few. So there is a recent podcast that I listened to, and if you like podcasts, which I assume you do if you're listening here, listen to the Fake Heiress podcast with Anna Sorokin, who pretended she was an heiress and got people to buy her things. So she would say, oh, I just don't have access to my money right now. And because they thought she was rich, they just paid for everything oh for her. Goodness. True story. And then there's Anthony Gignac. He claimed he was a Saudi prince for 30 years, and he was finally arrested in 2017. We know Bernie Madoff. He got yep. people to invest their mm-hmm. money in a Ponzi scheme, something that didn't really exist. He paid off investors with other investors' money. Then there's Elizabeth Holmes, America's richest self-made woman. She took investments for her company, Theranos, in a yes. blood testing technology that didn't actually exist. Yeah, I followed that. That's right. Yeah, that's very mm. recent. Crazy. And then Derek Aldred, he romanced women and took all of their money. <laughs> and then I found one in New Hampshire I from know. 2017, which you found too. I in found your too, yes. Dana Lawrence had performed 20 years worth of cons, often against unsuspecting men whom she dated. She targeted professionals with money, families who wanted to adopt children, and others who had a need or desire or one of the many human characteristics that I discussed earlier, Mm. which con men target. Lawrence had six children by six different men, using at least one of them as a shill in her cons, and it was interesting to read about her kids and what happened to them. The last attempted con of Lawrence, who was using the pseudonym Jenna Kaplan, was against the city of Nashua. When she offered her services to the mayor as a grant writer. And he he took her on because she was so convincing. She tried to access the city's bank accounts accounts and things went weird from there yeah. that's when they started to get suspicious that so, check i think they had that check like okay something is wrong here why why do you need this information right. why you don't need access to this thank like, goodness yeah. i know <laughs> so see the rest of the story from nbc news on our pinterest page mm-hmm. truly i could have researched common forever their schemes do make interesting stories, and unfortunately, they are everywhere. They are. And, you know, this kind of brings back, because you made a comment earlier when we were talking about con artists that um, typically are men. But I, just right here, and okay, so one in our book, but, you know, uh, the fake heiress, and then Elizabeth Holmes, and then yeah. Dana Lawrence. So, t- you know, really... There's a lot of women involved here. So I, I think maybe women are onto it. Aha. Uh-huh. Uh-huh, I can yeah. <laughs> like when when they um use babies as as shills or yeah. pawns in the game, mm-hmm. people never suspect little kids and now I think the women are onto it. Yeah. Uh, they won't suspect me I'm a woman. So um so I spoke with our school resource officer, Matthew Pelletier, to learn more. And here's some of what he had to say about scams and how to avoid them. As always, you can hear his full interview on our YouTube channel. And this is a little different because I'm going to play um, 
clips from his inter- his interview, but it just goes straight through for six minutes. Okay. Um, he starts by telling me that those short scams I mentioned are super, super common. Mm. It's safe to say that we, we, as a department, we probably get at least one a week, um, sometimes several a week. Um, they're super common. And that's, that's even in Golfstown. It's not a very big place. Everything from those scam emails, you know, from the Nigerian prince that is looking to offload $10 million to you, um, stuff like that. It could be somebody who has a work truck and they come by and they say, hey, you know, I did a driveway down the road and I have some leftover tar. Do you want me to patch your driveway? I'll only, you know, I'll only charge you 500 bucks or whatever. And then you give them the money and they never come back. But there's a million ways people are out there trying to trying to hustle good folks out of their money. A lot of times I'll talk to them after and most of the time, actually, they'll say, you know, I, I knew something didn't seem right, but I just, they were just so convincing, they always say. These bad guys, they know how to tug on heartstrings and stuff like that. You know, they know what angles to, to try. Um, sometimes they'll say, you know, you've won Publishers Clearinghouse and we have $12 million and a Mercedes-Benz on the way to your house right now, but wouldn't you know it, they got stopped in Massachusetts because the taxes weren't paid on them. So if you just send me $3,000 in a cashier's check, that'll clear it up and we'll, you know, we'll get it up to you. You'll have your money next week. Publishers Clearinghouse, they have, they make a whole thing about coming to your house with balloons. So if, if that's not happening and they're just calling you, that's a sign. Um, basically just, you got to, you know, you have to be realistic about things. You probably did not win. So you got to be suspicious immediately. Um, you know, ask for a callback number. Um, a lot of these scammers use, you know, they'll they use like a, a spoofed number. So it's not a real phone number. If you call back the number that shows up on your ID, you, you're going to get some person who has that phone number because that's not the number you got actually called from. Um, We've had cases of that where someone says, I got a call from this this woman. She was really angry and she says that I called her and I didn't. Um, and that's that's what happened is somebody spoofed this person's number to make it look like they made a call, but they didn't. They don't like it when you start asking questions most of the time um, because they are not going to have answers. They're going to run out of answers really quick. So if you start asking questions and they hang up, well, there you go. It's, I think people are people are too trusting of a lot of things these days and they get taken advantage of. So one scam that, that was pretty popular for a short time was they would uh, they'd make a call and let's say I'm doing the scam, right? I'll tell you that I am the, uh, I'm the Costa Rica police, right? And we have, a, uh, we have a family member of yours here who's been arrested and they need bail money. I'm going to put them on the phone so that you can talk to them and verify that it's them. Sounds pretty good, right? Then what I do is I switch to a pre-recorded sound clip of somebody who's maybe very upset, maybe they're super drunk, um, and uh, the audio is not very clear because I'm I'm in Costa Rica, right? And if you have a granddaughter that you know maybe is take maybe did take it to Costa Rica, are you going to hesitate at all to send two, three, four thousand dollars? To anyone to get your granddaughter out of jail like that's you know if you think that's what's happening you're not going to hesitate just human psychology the way that works is if i call you and i half convince you that you're that i'm your bank and i have you call me back at a certain number in your mind you're thinking i'm calling my bank right now and you're going to be yeah okay i can verify the last four of my social and my billing address and the three numbers in the back of the card no problem um because in your mind, you're talking to your bank. With teens, the issue is more of like blackmail and stuff like that. You know, convincing them to send certain types of pictures um, or videos and then saying, okay, cool, thank you for sending that. Now I have it, I need more or I'm gonna release it. Um, it turns into that real quick. And it's the same types of bad guys. Um, I'm not gonna get too much into it, but you know, Underage kids and stuff like that, there's a huge black market for that stuff. They're making a lot of money, obviously, illegally. Um, and as soon as that stuff's out there and that's what kids are being threatened with, um, they get real scared real quick and it just snowballs from there. So as, as far as teens and kids, just be super careful of what you post online. Um, information, what pictures you're sending, all that stuff is 
you need to be really careful because someone could take advantage of it. But if you're not okay with like a really, really bad guy having what you're going to put online, don't put it online because chances are it could get to them um, through other bad guys. I've That's always heard. Keep in mind. I've always heard also as a parent, if you're not comfortable with your parents seeing what you're sharing, yeah. don't but, share. Yeah, there you go. Simple <laughs> as that. Just slow down. Don't let people rush or push you into anything. That's what all con artists are going for. They want you to make a snap decision that's gonna and that's gonna advantage them instead of you. So when in doubt, try to take a minute. If they don't let you take a minute, then you don't want anything to do with them anyway. That's that's what it comes down to. Anybody who's rushing you is probably trying to take advantage of you. So our next theme is private eyes. Nora's sister, Jessica O'Malley, escaped as a shill in her mother's cons and established herself as a PI before saving her sister from her mother's grasp. O'Malley fits squarely within the detective fiction genre as someone from a rough background who is on the side of good, but sometimes does bad things Mm. to accomplish her goals. I would love it if author Tess Sharp wrote a book just about Sister Jess. Yeah, I was totally thinking the same thing. There are so many angles that she could go, like a great sequel to this book could be, and I'm not going to spoil anything here, but something could go down, activating what Nora talks about happening at the end of the book. You know, she she has some plans in place at the end of the book here, and it could pick up with Jess being put into action, and then her history plays out. Yeah. I don't know. I could see that. Yeah, I really liked her. I like that tough girl yeah. P.I. Yep. thing. Um, so let's start by talking about literature and television characters. We'll give you a little more to watch if you can track <laughs> these things down. So I've loved stories about private investigators since I was a little girl reading Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys. And then... Sean Cassidy. Do you remember him? I'm dating myself. (laughs) He was cast as Joe Hardy in the television version, and I was smitten. (laughs) To use one of your words, smitten. (laughs) So I've gone back and forth between falling for private investigators like Joe Hardy and wanting to be one, like the modern superhero PI Jessica Jones, (laughs) who I dressed as at a Comic-Con within the past couple of years. <laughs> wow, Melissa's had a Comic-Con. Wow, oh, yeah, more and more we learn about her. That's a big thing <laughs> in my family. I actually prefer steampunk festivals. Oh, yeah. We'll get to that another time. <laughs> we got to get a steampunk book, I think. I love steampunk. <laughs> While detective fiction relies on the mystery at the center of its plot, unlike straight-up mysteries, these rely equally as heavily on the character development of mm. their detectives. Detective fiction is a breed all its own. We put ourselves in the shoes of the detective, solving mysteries and admiring the characteristics of independence and intelligence. One article that I read stated crime fiction is one of the most resilient and flexible means to tell a story. It allows you to touch on social issues, on the inner quests and struggles we all face and spin a compelling yarn at the same time. (laughs) In fiction, Edgar Allan Poe started started us off with P.I. Monsieur. Monsieur C. Auguste Dupin in his short story, The Murders on Rue Morgue, in 1841. But it was Sherlock Holmes who, in the late 19th century, he really shaped the detective stories and characters that were to follow. Mm. The flawed Holmes was detached, addicted, and unapologetically clever to the point where he flaunted his superior intelligence and intentionally put down others' lesser brain power. While the story centered on the mystery, Writer Sir Arthur Conan Doyle made us feel the inner turmoils of his main character. Despite Holmes's hard-boiled characteristics, one interview with a crime author stated that this kind of fiction is more purely American, growing out of the stories of the Wild West. Hmm. So in England, while Holmes was supplanted by Agatha Christie's Hercule Poirot and Miss Marple, they were both clever, but the United States was seeing characters that can be recognized with tendencies that we might recognize as more American. Mm. And, you know, there's a whole genre of these cozy mystery novels. Um, And while the main characters are not PIs, they, um, you know, they're average people, but they possess these qualities of intuition, deductive reasoning, strong curiosities, and this knack for being at the right place at the right time, and and kind of put themselves in this detective PI positions. You know, I'm thinking of um, Charlene Harris's Real Murders Mysteries, and they center around a part-time librarian, Aurora Teagarden, who has a nose for solving mysteries. 
And then Joanne Fluke also has her series featuring the Baker and amateur crime-solving sleuth, Hannah Swenson. And at the end of this podcast, I will also have some additional teen books. So we do have some books coming in here uh, with some con artist appeal. So I'm going to give some titles there. Uh, so, Melissa, continue to tell us more about these American gumshoes. So before I do that, I, I just bought a new hammock. And I've never read any of these characters, authors. I can't wait to... to- <laughs> <laughs> highlight them and pull them out and sit in my hammock because school is almost over. Yes. Yes. Great time for reading in the summer. I love it. Yeah. Great time for reading anytime, but I particularly love summer reading. Absolutely. With the little lemonade next yeah. to my hammock. Mm. I like it. These American detectives we're talking about are often gritty, but clever. They are handsome and dangerous. They're passionate about their work, but aloof when it comes to the rest of their lives. They are very cynical. Most of them, until very recently, have been men. In college, my now husband took a literature class that studied what I I mentioned before, hard-boiled detectives, and I eagerly grabbed them up when he was finished. And he was a business major, so that was kind of fun Mm, that he did that on the side. (laughs) The class reached back to some 19th century roots with The Moonstone by Wilkie Collins, and then led us into 20th century classics such as The Maltese Falcon by Dashiell Hammett and The Big Sleep by Raymond Chandler. These hard-boiled detectives were part of the mean streets that developed as part of the Industrial Revolution. Life was hard. Poverty was rampant. Fighting, drinking, and swearing were Mm. regular parts of life. The P.I. teetered between the world of crime and order, often going over the line of good and evil in the name of maintaining law and upholding justice. I came across the term ambiguous morality while doing my research for this segment, and I think that's a great way to think about these characters. You know, interestingly, when I was looking up that noir fiction, um, I came across lots of things that had noir fiction, um, the noir detective versus the hard Boiled oh, detective, really? and so um, I was. You know, typically I do read through our script a little bit more, but I missed this whole section. So I was so excited when I saw. It. I'm like, I know what that is because I researched that and I looked it up, and um, and that was part of where they said that you know these protagonists in noir normally um, doom themselves, where the hard boiled detective, you know, there there's a little bit more that comes out of it. All has to do with the protagonists themselves and their outcome. Oh, that's fascinating! Yeah. You're going to have to share that noir. Story stuff and we'll share it with the audience. I will. So in the 1980s and 90s, Mary Wing's Emma Victor was a gritty and provocative lesbian and Sue Grafton's Kinsey Malone. They both arrived on the scene at the same time um, and were kind of a new aspect (laughs) of detective fiction, the the women female detective. At the time on television, we also had Columbo, Kojak, Spencer, Remington Steele, Mike Hammer, and a little later Monk some of whom were rooted first in literature. I love Monk. <laughs> I do. I personally love that show. And I think that maybe some of it is because um, I I love um, Anthony Shalhoub. I just love the, the actor himself. I think he's great. But um, one of my favorite shows, which I think fits aspects of two of our themes here, is Psych. Uh, it's about Sean Spencer, who has some uncanny, almost supernatural powers of observation. And after helping the police solve some crimes, he opens a PI agency with his bestie, Gus. Uh, known as Guster. And uh, while they also still act as consultants for the police for some crimes, um, they kind of try to also go off on their own. Um, However, Sean is also perpetrating a con of sorts because the police think he has psychic abilities and he plays on that. And he he doesn't correct them that it's just keen observation. You know, um, he, he continues with the con because, one, he wants to solve the crimes and get the nice little stipend that the police department gives him. So um, I was like, wow, this fits right in with our theme. Tricky, tricky. Um, And not that I'm looking for a career change, but how does one go about becoming uh, a real-life private investigator? Yeah, so I started wondering, well, how realistic is this? Like, how would Nora's sister become a PI? Mm. Could could she do that? So let's take a quick look at what it takes to be a real-life PI in New Hampshire. Does real life match up to fiction? First, private investigators must be licensed by the state through the New Hampshire Department of Safety, Division of State Police. And Mm. I've pinned the page with the necessary forms one needs to fill out to become a PI, just in case you want to We're not pushing this or anything. Yeah, in case you do want a career (laughs) change. (laughs) In New Hampshire, in accordance with Title VII, Chapter 106F, (laughs) always give your citations. 
The licensed private investigator means a person other than a sworn law enforcement officer engaged in conducting investigations, including, but not limited to, unsolved crimes, insurance claims, or matters for attorneys in anticipation of civil litigation, Hmm. clandestine surveillance, locating missing persons, locating lost, concealed, or stolen property, locating escaped felons or wanted persons subject to reward for capture. A PI must be at least 18 and a resident um, and uh, cannot have a felony um, on their record. There can be no domestic violence or abuse convictions, and they must not have certain types of misdemeanor convictions. So some types are okay. (laughs) Some, but not others. Okay. (laughs) Um, There's also... um, uh, education and certifications ah. required, and I've pinned those for you too. Um, the requirements are extensive, and investigators only make about sixty thousand per year. But there are only about two hundred fifty PIs registered in New Hampshire right now, so competition for business may not be too bad. <laughs> Southern New Hampshire University also has a good criminal justice program that could help you with your training. Okay, all right, that is fascinating to me. Okay, teens. Um, as you move into a young adulthood, uh, should you decide to become a PI because of our podcast, <laughs> please drop us a line and let us know. <laughs> we would love to hear from you. <laughs> oh, theme three. We're on to theme three. Theme three. Here we go. So I won't tell you what they're setting out to steal in this book. Oh, theme three um, is bank robberies, by it, the way. It is bank robberies. <laughs> <laughs> How could we forget that? <laughs> So um, we don't learn till the end of the book what the bank robbers are trying to steal. So no spoilers. I won't give that away. But the book got me intrigued about bank robberies. And I am a sucker for the Westerns where bank robberies are often prominently displayed. (laughs) So with Western expansion in the United States, a lot happened with our Western expansion. We mentioned that earlier. In the 19th and early 20th centuries, bank robberies flourished. Part of the legends of the Wild West, bank robberies have been highlighted in films such as Bonnie and Clyde, Babyface Nelson, Dillinger, uh, The Assassination mm-hmm. of Jesse James, and one of my very favorite movies, again, Robert Redford and Paul Newman. I'm seeing a theme here. Butch Cassidy <laughs> and the Sundance Kid. So they only did two films together, and oh, those were the two. Those were the two. And what? The Sting and Butch Cassidy, and I so wish they did more. (laughs) So although the stories of these outlaws and killers make great legends, their bank robberies were relatively small-time capers, the ones that that they made movies out of. So I decided to do a little research on large U.S. bank robberies, and there are a handful of them. So in the second half of the 19th century, there was George Leonidas Leslie, also known as George Howard, also known as Western George. So that idea of different names, yeah. there you go. Also known. Why do criminals always have AKAs? <laughs> he led a gang that was supposedly responsible for 80% of the bank robberies in the United States at that mm. time. His biggest heist was the Manhattan Savings Institution robbery in 1878 when he and his gang coerced a janitor to give them the safe keys or combination. Different sources said different okay. things. Some sources even said he was in on it. Um, They stole three and a half million dollars. And there's a great article from the New York Times that describes the robbery with floor plans and everything. So if you are really interested in this kind of stuff, those floor plans are really fascinating. So another famous bank heist, and this one was really interesting to me because it's in Boston Mm -hmm. where I lived for some time. Um, uh, This was the Great Brinks Bank Robbery in Boston on January 17th, 1950. There have been other Brinks heists, but this one is distinguished as the great for the almost $3 million that was stolen. The FBI's web pages explain how the case was solved. A large part of it involved mobsters turning on each other, which is interesting when you think about our book, where yep. the two guys were turning on each other. The arguing and miscommunication between red, crap, red cap and gray cap caused a lot of friction and made getting the job accomplished much more difficult. Mm-hmm. In the case of Brinks, it was years after the robbery that the hostility of the robbers toward one another grew and led to the downfall of the whole gang. They were unhappy with their shares. They didn't trust each other. They were unhappy with how many people who got cuts. Um, They figured people were getting unfair amounts of money when they didn't do much work, et cetera, et cetera. So then the biggest bank robbery in the United States was the Dunbar heist in Los Angeles in 1997. The thieves got away with $18.9 million. They were caught. 
after one of the robbers paid a real estate broker with the stolen cash that was bound together in its original straps. <laughs> and he was like, huh. Some of them aren't that bright. <laughs> I don't think this is, belongs on this money. <laughs> of course, they're making this into a movie now. And also, of course, I can't wait to see it. <laughs> So there's this other movie that does have to do with, um, I don't think it was Brinks, but it's like an armored car heist, and it's called Masterminds. It was uh, Zach Galifianakis is in it, oh, and um, Kristen Wiig. And actually, it's based on a true story as well. Um, it, it's hilarious. If you want to you know, watch another thing that has to do with bank robberies kind of gone wrong um, that are based on real life, watch that one. Very, very funny. So... Melissa, who knew that we were going to have this much to talk about? We always do, so I kind of <laughs> <No>, knew. exactly. <laughs> Each and every time, I'm always impressed with the little seeds of curiosity that get watered with research and expert influence, and they eventually bloom into these super exciting topics of information. So listeners, if you are looking for the adrenaline rush of other books that feature the good con or a heist, try The Heist Society. Um, it's a trilogy by Allie Carter. Of course, uh, Six of Crows, a duology by Lee Bardugo. My daughter loves that one. Yeah. Um, and what the White Cat trilogy is by Holly Black. And finally, How to Lead a Life of Crime by Kirsten Miller. So some summer reading for you right there. There you go, listeners. I've set you up. Uh, you can uh, satisfy your inner con artist inquiring mind. <laughs> so that concludes our podcast today. Listeners, as always, I'm so happy you joined us. If you are enjoying all that Melissa and I have to say, please make sure you tell your friends about the Curious Reader Podcast um, and make sure you like it so that we know. And the Curious Reader Podcast can be found on your favorite podcast app. But before you go, here is what Melissa and I will be discussing next month. So you've heard of Mozart, but do you know about Mozart's sister? So explore a book steeped in historical fiction, layered with fantastical magical elements. Nanerl Mozart wishes to be remembered forever by the audiences she masterfully delights with her musical ability. But as a female in the 18th century Europe, composing is forbidden to her, and she can only perform until she reaches the age of marriage. But then a mysterious stranger from a magical land extends an irresistible offer that can make all of Nanerl's wishes come true. But at what cost? Tune in next month for best-selling author Marie Lu's book, The Kingdom of Back. And thank you for listening. And remember, the curious reader seeks understanding beyond the book. <laughs>